Begin Podfix Network transmission. In three, two, one. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Groves. Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, and your best friend. Today on the podcast, it's going to be a ton of fun. Got just two little things to do with you tonight. The big one is we're interviewing Zeb Hogan. Zeb Hogan just wrote a book called Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. Really exciting. And I have a very important news story and exclusive interview for you during our news today. So we're going to jump right in to the news first. And then we're going to get into Zeb Hogan with Chasing Giants. Talk all about that in just a minute. First, the news. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. And I'm very excited right now because in the news this week, or actually last week it happened, 13 days ago actually, to be honest with you, this happened, uh, a massive research initiative to explore deep sea creatures brought discoveries to light in the northern Pacific Ocean last year when scientists filmed and captured three fish at the depths never recorded before. And I feel super lucky because with me today, I have an exclusive interview with the world's deepest fish. Please welcome to the show, the snailfish. Settle down, settle down. Snailfish. Wow. How does it feel to be discovered as the world's deepest fish. Well, actually, being discovered is more like a metaphor for someone opening a door to a world that's never before been seen. Oh, okay. Not not quite what I meant by that, but thank you, Snailfish. Um, so it took 10 years in, collaborative, in a collaborative effort between the University of Western Australia and the Tokyo University of Marine Science and Technology. Scientists used baited robotic cameras to film young snailfish at about 8,300 meters below the surface. What's it like when you first saw those lights? Just like when you're near death. One just swims towards the light. But as I wasn't ready to die, I almost swam away. It's like the great philosopher Woody Allen said, It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Okay, well, thank you, Wells Deepest Fish. That was enlightening. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so they found you five miles down, and they haven't yet named your species yet. Uh, and by the way, when they found you, they, they found you by putting bait on hooks and tra- attracting you in. Tell us, who, who are you? I am the winter of your discontent. I am someone, and yet I am no one. I was once seen, and then I disappeared. I'm the peanut butter to my own jelly. I am the rhyme to my own limerick. But you can call me Frederick. Okay, Frederick. Thank you for that. Um, And thank you for your time, Snailfish. I think it's really exciting that they found you. And I also think, don't mind me saying, that you are super cute. It seems like a shallow way to think cute. Remember what Confucius said, everything has its beauty, but not everyone sees it. And you should know better, Clay. You are going to cause me to have an existential crisis. And now I bid you adieu. Wait, before you go, I've got some more questions. I bid you adieu. But I have more questions. Adieu. Good day, sir. Good day, sir. All right, there it is. That was the world's deepest fish, and uh, that was Fish in the News. Uh, remind me never to interview a fish again, because that, that was a rough one. All right, so next up, on, and by the way, um, just if, if you are a listener to other podcasts, after I came up with this idea, I heard the same bit done differently on a different podcast, so uh, it's hard to be original sometimes, but it was on the Pod Save America, I think, and they did the same interview with the World Deepest Fish. But I had the idea, and then I heard it, and do you not do the idea, or do you just do the idea anyway? So I did it anyway. So, but I'll give some credit to the pod save people. All right, let's talk about the next segment of this podcast, Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. Brand new book by Zeb Hogan. 
from National Geographic. I got a chance to talk with Zeb last week all about his brand new book. So we're going to play that interview for you now, and you can get that book right now on Amazon. Okay, Fish Nerds, we're very excited because I'm here with Zeb Hogan, who just, well, hasn't not out yet, new book's coming out this month called Chasing Giants, The Search for the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. Zeb, how are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, I'm at a little deficit. I haven't actually heard of you. I don't watch a lot of television. I don't watch fishing shows. And so I hadn't heard of you before. And I found out after I read your book, while reading your book, that you had a National Geographic TV show. And then you went on this big epic angling quest. And the reason it's exciting for me is, I'm not sure you know about too much about the fish nerds, but we started off as an epic freshwater angling quest. So we had that in common. We started off as a quest to catch and eat every kind of freshwater fish in the state of New Hampshire. Wow. How many, yeah. how many different kinds of fish is that? There are 48, 48 freshwater species of fish in New Hampshire that you can legally catch. There's some fish that are protected, so you can't catch them anymore. So I'm a, I, wow, that's I, amazing. I, I already learned something new about fish that I didn't know, 48 there, species. Yeah, there you that's go. About, that's about the same number. We, I'm in Nevada right now. I'm a, a biology professor in Reno, and that's we have about 48 here in Nevada. Right. And it's funny because you go out to the Midwest and you get like 200 and change, you know, like in Minnesota, Michigan, stuff like that. But when the glaciers came through New Hampshire, if you couldn't, you know, head out to the ocean or burrow down the mud for years and years, it was just game over for you. So the numbers are really low. Those aren't 48 native fish. There's only about a dozen native fishes. The rest are all introduced over the years. So it's it's really a small been, number. You must have been eating a couple small guys. Oh, well, the smallest fish we ate was a, was a northern red-bellied dace. It was about an inch and a quarter long. Yeah, I can imagine. And we caught the state record channel catfish during the quest, too. So we got the biggest fish and the smallest fish in the same which, quest. Which is how, how big? It was about just under 13 pounds. Wow. And the record's been broken since then, but we got to kill the... <laughs> yeah, channel catfish. Man, those channel catfish are everywhere. They are. And they're new to New Hampshire. They've only been here about uh, eight years. You know, they're just people drop them up and, you know, they they t- they they can live anywhere. They don't care. But we're here to talk about your big fishing quest. You were on a quest to find the largest freshwater fish in the world, which is which is pretty amazing. And before I read the book, I was trying to imagine what the biggest freshwater fish could be. And I landed on like, you know, I was guessing sturgeon. I'm thinking, okay, well, how are you defining freshwater fish? You know, are you counting anadromous fishes, which will increase the number more? Are you counting sharks that can be sometimes in freshwater? So before we get too far in, why don't we just start by defining your quest? What... What is a freshwater fish in your book? Yeah, the search started when fishermen uh, that I was working with as part of my PhD research, fishermen in northern Thailand caught a 646-pound Mekong giant catfish. I've seen the picture of this thing. So big. It'll pop up on Google, uh, Google, you know, world's largest catfish or whatever. Uh, But that's what started all of this. Um, I was uh, doing my PhD research. And the fishermen up there, they have a long tradition of fishing for these big catfish. They caught this 646-pound fish. And uh, I asked what I thought was a simple question, which is, I, I mean, I didn't even, this started out kind of a, as a fluke, but I, you know, is is this the world's largest freshwater fish? What is the world's largest freshwater fish? And the fishermen there had been keeping records of their catches for like since the 1980s. It was the biggest fish they'd ever caught. And they catch these things every year. Mm-hmm. And then kind of news went around the world of this big catch. And I was expecting to hear stories from other parts of the world of bigger fish. But not there was nothing. So the important qualifier, you, you brought this up, is that the focus is on fish that live their entire lives in freshwater. And so a lot of people say, oh, well, like beluga sturgeon, white sturgeon can get a lot bigger than 646 pounds, which is true. Uh, white sturgeon get huge on the Pacific, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, beluga sturgeon get even bigger. I think the record beluga sturgeon is like 4,000 pounds Jesus. from like Caspian region. <laughs> so there are fish that you can find in freshwater that get bigger. For my search and my research is actually my research topic as well as a biologist is fish that uh, spend their whole lives in freshwater. Right. Well, that's an important distinction. You know, we, we forget about the migratory function of fish. And when fish go to the ocean, they eat so much food, they can just, they can just get so much bigger. You know, even freshwater fish 
that we have in the United States. If you look at rainbow trout versus steelhead, when the steelhead are seen run, which are the same animal, they become huge and it's exactly the same animal. So it's a good example of that difference between freshwater and anadromous. So really cool yeah, way to define it. Fish do seem to yeah have access to more resources when they connect with the ocean. It also turned out to be an important distinction for a couple other reasons. One is because not very much work research has been done on these big freshwater fish, which whereas more research has been done on sturgeon and on big ocean fish, for whatever reason, very a lot of these big freshwater fish have not not been studied. The other important thing was that uh, the there had to be a limit in terms of the number of fish. And so uh, I was interested in fish in freshwater that get more than six feet long or weigh more than 200 pounds. And that there are about 30 or 40 species of fish that get that big. So there had to be some limit to, to the number of fish I was going to go out and try to find. Good. And now, so, so now you're defining your quest. You know what a freshwater fish is. You know the number of, roughly number of fish you want to fish for. This is all so familiar to me. And then... Uh, your technique, did you have to like, were you, were you open to any technique for catching this fish or were you really specific about, I want to make sure we don't kill the fish or how was, was just all, all catch and release. Although I think the, maybe it might've differed from what you did a little bit. Well, I killed I, them all. I, <laughs> you, you ate, I had to eat them. Yeah, yeah. It really differed from what you did. You yeah. ate, you ate, you ate even the one inchers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, it wasn't, me catching them. I just wanted to verify. I wanted to learn about them. So as soon as I started researching this topic, like fishermen obviously love to tell stories. And so I thought there would be a simple answer. What's the world's largest freshwater fish? I went online. I found 20 different people saying 20 different kinds of fish were the biggest. 90% of those stories weren't true. And so for you're me, saying that what, fishermen lie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exaggerate or pass, you know, mm-hmm. stories go from one person to another and the fish grows every time. Um, so it wasn't about catching it for me personally. I just, I just wanted to see it. So mm-hmm. I would go out with local scientists, go out with local fishermen. Some of these fish I caught myself. Some of them were caught with nets. Some of them were caught electrofishing, you know, whatever. I just, for me, I wanted to verify, hey, this fish exists, it gets this big, and just learn about it. And then most of these fish need protection or endangered, so wanted to kind of figure out how to better protect them. And by highlighting them, you kind of make them, you know, more cuddly, more attractive to the public. And so that really helps them a lot. So so it's really good. And uh, congratulations just on being able to fund this. I mean, this is an expensive endeavor, and you were lucky enough, or you earned it. I'm not sure if you were luck or earned a combination of both things, but you earned funding to get to get this going. How did that? I'm really curious. How did you get the funding? The initial funding came from National Geographic. National Geographic. You know, a lot of people have read the magazine or heard of the TV show, but they're also they've funded like over ten thousand. I think they're up to fifteen thousand grants that they fund for explorers and scientists. And so, I received my first National Geographic grant, I believe, in two thousand two. And it was like $10,000 or something. Um, and it was the just initial funding to get this work going. I reapplied for more funding. We started doing the television shows. So one thing sort of led to another. Everything kind of happened independently of each other. The research was, re- the shows were based on the research I was doing, but they were funded separately. Each of the shows had its own budget and kind of was done independently of the research. So it was very lucky to be able to do this. Um, Not very many people have done this type of work. And I don't think it's because people aren't interested. It's just because it's hard to find the money to do it. Um, Marine biology, this is kind of one of my, it's not exactly a pet peeve, but like uh, I wish there there were more resources for this type of work. Marine biology, it's just inherently a global issue there are whole organizations, whole divisions of government focused on marine studies, and we just don't have that for freshwater. Uh, we're very locally focused on our own rivers and lakes, which we should be, but it means that there aren't the resources for, for global work, and that's a shame. Well, you know, you brought a lot of light to it, which is really good. Now, incidentally, I once had a contract with Nat Geo to uh, do a reality TV show, but I got fired because I wouldn't participate the way they wanted me to. They were making a show in New Hampshire called The Ice Holes, which was supposed to be a cultural look at uh, of ice fishing. 
but it turned out to be a scripted reality show. And I, I got fired because I wouldn't get drunk on camera because I was a teacher. I'm like, I, you're not paying me quit your job money for this. So. Yeah. TV, yeah. TV, I only have experience with the Monster Fish, which mm-hmm. is the television show I did with National Geographic. But it's it's a strange so weird. feature. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our shows were not were not scripted. Right. Um, but they were what what did they call it? Um it's called a beat sheet or something. Mm-hmm. So basically it's it is scripted in the sense that there is a document written before we do the show that is a show. Right. So they can so plan like, the shots they're gonna get and, and they can know the arc yeah, of, so of like what they're nothing, doing. Nothing actually happens. We don't know when we're gonna catch a fish. Right. So nothing, you know, the I read one of these. I don't know if it's called a treatment. I should know this stuff, but uh, I got into television as a biologist. I didn't get into tele- television as someone who knew about television. Right. But, you know, there were these documents and, you know, they kept Zeb catches a big stingray. He's wrestling with it, all this stuff. Like it was all written before we even started filming. And none of that happened with, that was in that script. Wishful thinking. But, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it was just so that everyone kind of understood, hey, this might happen. Where the ca- where's the camera going to be? You know, what what are the story lines that we're interested in? And so I, I didn't mind it. When we first started filming, it was hard. Um, and the hardest thing, there were there were examples like what you're talking about where something would happen that just didn't feel right. Um, but that was rare. Right. And that happened less and less as you get to know the team. Um, and everyone has the same expectations. By we then, build the, trust. We filmed, yeah. yeah, we filmed thirty shows, and by the end, we it was the same team every time, and we knew each other, and we knew what where our comfort lim- limits were and stuff. Um, but what what was hardest for me when we first started was that if it wasn't filmed, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, and we when we first started filming, we only had one camera, and so for example, when people would meet each other, I would meet a fisherman that I'd known for ten years, mm-hmm. if, a friend. And I would, I'd walk up to him. I'd say, hello. It felt, it already felt weird because they were filming it. And then I said, oh, hey, hi, nice to see you again. And then they said, okay, do it again. Right. And they had to film it the other way. And I was like, I can't say hi to this guy again. Like, that's <laughs> stupid. But it was necessary. It is. So it, it, is. it took took me a while to get used to that. Yeah, but it's still cool. I mean, it's neat. And, and congratulations on getting the book out too. I mean, just the act of writing a book is such a huge challenge. So pretty amazing. What I found shocking about your book because again, not knowing anything about you or what you were up to, I saw the title Chasing Giants. I'm like, great, another big fish fishing book. You know, we can be talking about striped bass or something like that, which I don't find very exciting. You know, catching fish is fun, but I don't usually find not interested in how to catch the biggest fish. Uh, I was surprised, and I shouldn't have been if I had done my homework on you, how science dense your book was. It is a science book in a lot of ways. It, there's there's so much fish history in there, taxonomy. And and I found that really fascinating because I did not expect that and I had to slow down my pace of reading quite a bit to keep in the book. Yeah, we wanted to be engaging, but it, to my knowledge, there is no book that provides the science of these fish. Mm-hmm. So there are all these fascinating, amazing, big freshwater fish all over the world. And I don't think a, there's been a book written about them. And so that was the objective was to introduce, you know, what are these fish? Where do they occur? How did they evolve? Um, why are they important? What threats they're facing? And then what can we do to protect them? So it was, it, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a biologist. I'm at the University of Nevada, Reno. And so we definitely, and I'm not, I'm a biologist first and an angler second, or maybe even third. So right. the emphasis is on the the science. And the book shows that too, which is really great. I appreciate you doing that. It's because it's, it's important. People learn some stuff. Uh, and, and it kind of got into it right away with the Arapaima. And I mean, I learned so I, I thought I knew about the Arapaima. I read some other books. I interviewed um, Emily Voigt, who wrote The Dragon Behind the Glass. So I thought I knew a lot about Arapaima, but then, you know, her book is a different story arc than yours. So yours is science. And I learned a lot more. I didn't realize the Arapaima can't breathe underwater. Yeah, I'll get that air you. breathers. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And I guess they're fish that way as well. It's a, it's an adaptation. Mm-hmm. So they can survive in environments where other fish can't. But we learned I don't want to say we learned the hard way. I'm not sh- I don't I'd like to think we didn't kill any fish. Um but when you after you catch them, they like most fish do, they get tired and you have to hold them up 
at the surface of the water until they start gulping air again, mm-hmm. or they can drown. And so, well, it's a whole different catch and release than we would for a trout, where you're holding it underwater. You got to hold these up where they can actually yeah, catch exactly. a breath. <laughs> I mean, on the surface, you right. know, not totally out of water. And I think where we learned that actually, we did film and fish in the Amazon and in Guyana, which apparently has. I've talked to some biologists who think that the the record fish is actually in Guyana, but um, there are these fishing ponds in Thailand where they stock fishing ponds with all, I mean, hundred different species of the world's largest fish. And those fish in those ponds, they're beautiful, big fish, but they're also very, they're valuable to those pond, the, the operators of the fishing ponds. And so they require people who fish in those ponds to handle the fish very um, gently. And one of the rules with the arapaima is you have to we bring it in and then you have to hold it on the surface for like 10 minutes until it's swimming again and gulping air. And then you can release it because they've had a, a bunch of them die. That's, that's crazy. Well, let's, let's talk about the arapaima since we're, since we're there. That was one of the early fish in your quest uh, was the arapaima. You were talking about how big they can get. Uh, how big can they get? That's a good question. That you know of. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, uh, the biggest one I've heard of is about 500 pounds, 10 feet long, 500 pounds. That's the biggest verified arapaima that I've heard of. That was caught in Brazil. Um, there, I friends, colleagues with a, a, another professor named Donald Stewart, who's an arapaima expert. And he believes very strongly that the largest arapaima are in Guyana because they're a different kind of body shape. They're stockier. Mm-hmm. And so he was, he thinks that the really big ones are in Guyana. Arapaima is an interesting fish. So um, new, it's more than one species. So Mm -hmm. new species have been described recently. And it's also a fish that um, it's easy to overfish. They have to come to the air to breathe. So they're easy to target like traditionally with spears and things. And so up until recently, Arapaima populations were overfished. You didn't see the really big ones. But the last 10 or 20 years, there have been a lot more protection and communities protecting their arapaima populations. And so they're, they're starting to get bigger and the fish that are being caught are starting to get larger. So we'll see. Um, I, Yeah, people like to joke with me. Uh, I have my own view of, you know, the world's largest fish, but there are a group of people out there that think that the arapaima is ultimately going to be the biggest. Right. And I'm, I don't, what I don't want to do on this podcast today is give away the answer to the book, which is the biggest freshwater fish in the world. I want to save that for the readers. Um, but uh, it, let's say someone catches a bigger fish than the one you caught. That's the biggest in the world. Uh, would you, would you be excited about that? Oh, or would I, you I be... would be, I would be so excited. I, that would be, I mean, I would be so happy that that's, it's not the point, but mm-hmm. it's what it represents. If someone, it, it would represent that people care, that someone's paying attention, that they're, they, fish don't get that big unless there's a healthy population. So if, I mean, the book, I'll give away a little bit. The book starts with the catch of the 646 pound catfish, which was, is the, was the world record at that time. You know, it took 20 years to find something bigger. So anyway, if it hadn't taken that long, or if there had been a hundred fish bigger than that initial fish, that would be good. That would be good for everyone. Right. So the fact that it took so long is maybe not that good. And if someone, if I heard tomorrow that there was a bigger fish out there somewhere, I would be so happy. You'd be thrilled. Now, that one of the big challenges with this is confirming the weight of the fish. You get in these huge fish and they, they become so massive and you've got to find a way to weigh them without killing them or stressing them too much. And there's a lot of stories in your book about how you do that. Some of the rays you caught were having babies while you were trying to weigh them. Uh, so that impacts that. What it, what it, can you just run down some of the challenges you have with weighing some of these fish? Yeah, the, the main challenge is that we don't want to hurt the fish. Mm-hmm. And so those rays that were having babies, that's a stress response. And so they're... I imagine you're stressed. Every time you stretch, you have babies. You know, yeah, yeah, hard day at work. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, don't, you don't want that to happen. So we, I mean, I'm pretty sure we actually did catch bigger fish, you know, fish that would have been the record that we just didn't have a way to weigh safely. Um, But yeah, I think that's actually the one qualifier about me being thrilled if the record was broken is that if the record was broken, probably whoever, you know, the fish would probably end up dead. Mm -hmm. So that that's the biggest challenge is how do you weigh 
a six or 700 pound animal, especially a fish that lives in water, how do you weigh it without hurting it? And that's quite hard. So we, we tried all different kinds of things. Uh, you know, we had a crane in Thailand, you can do amazing things. Uh, it's just easier and, and cheaper over there than some, sometimes it is here or in the U S and so we hired a crane for like hundred bucks a day. And, uh, we actually had the crane drive up to the river and, you know, be able to lift the ray quickly out of water and weigh it with the crane. <laughs> and so we tried that for a few weeks and didn't happen to get a big one during the time we were doing that. But it's it's a challenge for sure. Yeah, One of the um, things I connect with in the book is, and I thought, see, I, th- I thought you were going to fail on your quest. There was, a, there was a part in the book where you were catching, I think it was a giant ray. and and you didn't have any way of me- of weighing it. You weren't prepared to weigh it. And it reminded me in my quest when I failed to get all forty eight f- fishes. I didn't get them all. And I and I started going, "Oh, come on, Zeb!" Like, and I started feeling this feel of like, "What are we going to do?" And then luckily, there's like fifty pages of book left, so I was like, "Okay, there's got to be there's got to be resolution here somewhere." But take us through the the, the feeling and the time when you. I think it was a ray, right? I'm not wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The one that we couldn't weigh. Yeah, yeah. I, it's. The thing about fishing, and I, fi- people who fish will appreciate this. People who don't might not. But you don't know. You don't know what you're going to catch. No, you can't I, control that part. I guess, yeah. some, I guess sometimes you do. But like we're 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 out there looking for the largest, rarest fish in the world. We have no idea what's going to happen, and so sometimes we would, we would be prepared when when we were prepared, we wouldn't catch anything. When we weren't prepared, we would maybe we would catch something. So it's just, you just don't know. And I think I was trained. I I was like, personally, I think I was prepared because as a scientist, we don't, our expectations are low. No. Things take, a, you know, <laughs> studies take a long time. We don't expect things to happen quickly. Um, and, but for the shows, everything had to happen so quickly. And so I was used to the stress of the shows and the book, the pace of the book is, is um, it took us 10 years, you know, over 10 years to write the book. So the pace of the book, it just, we had more time, the stress that you're talking about, or maybe that feeling we, I had every time when we were filming, (laughs) but yeah. So luckily I was able to mostly avoid that with the writing because it just was a, we, we had, we had more time. Well, in that in that particular chapter, it reflected that that stress pretty well. So that so to, to and we can give we can give away a little stories in the book here and there. I don't want to give away the ending, but it's okay to tell some stories. Uh, I'd be remiss not to talk about the catfish that eat pigeons. I think everyone wants to talk about that. Uh, so tell us about these catfish. Uh, the catfish that eat pigeons. There, it's a Wells catfish. It's Europe's largest freshwater fish. It is native to Eastern Europe but has been introduced into Western Europe primarily by anglers for fishing. So they can catch it. And so, yeah, there's a famous story of a German angler who put 30 baby Wells catfish in the trunk of his VW bug. Do VW bugs have trunks? That was the car. It's in the front. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he put it in the front of his car. um, And took 30 baby Wells catfish to the Ebro River in Spain and released them. And what's happened in Western Europe now is every year since those initial initial introductions, the fish just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. This happens a lot when fish are introduced into new places. They take advantage of big predator and there's lots of fish that don't aren't used to them and they just eat everything. So these wells kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And in one location, which is in uh, Albi, it's a town of Albi, if I'm remembering this right, in France, southern France. Uh, there's a bridge. It's a it's beautiful old city, medieval city. And there's this old bridge over the river and the pigeons come down. They'll f- it's right in downtown. They'll fly around and then they land on these gravel bars below the bridge. And all the wells catfish sit at the edge of these gravel bars. And when the pigeons come to bathe, um, the wells will come out of the water and take the pigeons and it's, it wasn't exactly what I imagined because it all happens like in slow motion. It's like a comedy of errors because the pigeons are bathing, they're oblivious. The wells are not very good. 
at catching the pigeons. And so the pigeons will be bathing, the wells will come up and try to eat, take it. The pigeon half the time doesn't even know what what's going on. It'll and they keep, come right back and take yeah, a bath again. It's, yeah. It's like, oh my God, it's hard, it's, it's hard to watch. Um, and so that those the wells catfish are they're very um you know they adapt they're very um adaptive feeders i don't, I don't know what the correct term is but the, you know they opportunistic they yeah. are opportunistic that's the word exactly they're opportunistic feeders and they've learned to feed on pigeons they'll they'll eat almost anything they have huge they're crazy they're actually kind of a beautiful looking fish their their coloration and everything but they have a huge head and a huge mouth and then a body that kind of tapers and as slender as it, um, but they get, I mean, I think the biggest one I've heard of is about 350 pounds, but um, yeah, they get big and they, they just keep growing in Western Europe. The water is warmer. There's more food. And um, a lot of the fishing, they're not traditionally eaten in Western Europe. And so a lot of the fishing is catch and release. And so there's nothing to really keep them in check uh, in a lot of these rivers where they've been introduced. Yeah. Now there was part of your book that kind of ruined my my day. I was I was disappointed in the outcome of of the Loch Ness monster. Right? You, <laughs> you you kind of wrecked that for us. Tell us a little bit about yeah, the Loch Ness you know, experiment I, experience. Excuse me. I I have mixed feelings about this. So I've I've seen a lot of these big fish, and in a lot of places you, you um we'll we'll catch a big fish, big giant you know giant catfish or giant freshwater ray. I'm trying to think of other times when this has happened. And a crowd will gather um, when one of these fish is caught of local people. And the local people, it will be the first time that they've ever seen one of these fish. So, you know, this is a long way of saying like the stories, every, every big river and lake has a story of, of some aquatic beast that live we have we i'm near lake tahoe and we have tahoe tessie which is probably for tourism tourism purposes but um (laughs) um, but anyway every real stories most large rivers and lakes have real stories um that have old stories of these aquatic beasts that live in in these bodies of water and my opinion i guess it, it does ruin it a little bit but my opinion is you know people a lot of people have never even seen these uh, incredibly, unbelievably large fish that actually do live in these rivers. So it's very easy for me to imagine that, um, I mean, yes, we have this idea of Loch Ness and the stories associated with Loch Ness and the fact that it might be an undescribed animal. But the reality, the reason I don't find it disappointing is the reality is there probably are undescribed giant animals out there mm-hmm. like it does exist it does it just doesn't exist uh, and this again my personal opinion it does exist it just doesn't exist in the way that we may imagine it exactly the way that we may imagine it right well i, I felt sad after that anyway, so um you uh you have a background uh talking a lot about dams and the, the impact dams have on fishes i used to work at a fish ladder in new hampshire as an educator so I have a lot of similar background. Are dams one of your big? Uh, well, let's let me ask. Let me rephrase that. Let me. What do you? I'm going to plant. Obviously, I want to talk about dams. But like, what do you think are the biggest factors impacting freshwater fishes, like globally? Big fish, big freshwater fish dams are a huge impact, and one of the reasons dams a lot of times have such negative impact is that they're going in. So they went in, in North America a lot of, a long time ago and had serious impact on our salmon and sturgeon populations. So they're really impacting, they, they impact all fish for a variety of reasons, but fish, you know, anadromous fish, fish that are migrating long distances, they're blocking migrations, they're disrupting downstream, downstream dispersal of, of young. And then also they really facilitate invasive species. So you have a lot of dams. It creates these environments where um, non-native species tend to do really well, kind well, of generalist know, species. I don't know if this happens worldwide. Like in New Hampshire, for example, which I'm going to speak to a little bit, um, back in the 1800s, 1890s, up to about early 1920s, we put over 3,000 dams in our state, wiping out the game fish population entirely. 
not just this migratory fish, but everything else as well. And then they, they did what's called the bassing of New Hampshire, which is they went down south and they grabbed all the bass and pumpkin seeds and bluegills they could find and threw them in all the lakes. Then they went out west and they put rainbow trout on trains and brought them in up in our lakes. They went to Germany and brought brown trout over and they just started throwing fish in the water to see what would stay. Is that the normal, like everywhere where dams are? Yeah, a lot of places. And I mean, I grew up fishing for rainbow trout, bluegill, channel catfish, small ones where maybe they were bullhead or something. Anyway, I didn't know. Like, I I thought those were the normal fish. You know, I thought mm-hmm. that those fish were f- from that pond where I was fishing or sure. that stream. And that's the experience a lot of us have is we grow up fishing for non-natives and don't even a lot of times realize they're non-native. Um, and yeah, so that does happen around the world. Um, what's what's really right now what's happening in a lot of places or why their dams are having such a big impact, especially now, is that dams are going in on a lot of big tropical rivers. So Amazon, Congo, Mekong, these those so those are the three most diverse in terms of fish, fish diversity, highest fish diversity in the world. And so these big dams are starting to go in in places where there are a lot of different kinds of fish. And so they'll like very likely have the same impacts they had in North America, but that's occurring now in rivers that have thousands of species of fish. So, I mean, the, hopefully we can avoid the worst outcomes, but you can sort of see where, where it's headed. Right. And that impoundment is going to make a big difference in those fishes. And we, have, and we don't know the outcome. Well, we do, we, we can guess the outcome, but we don't know what's going to happen. You might end up with some weird fish that get bigger, a lot of fish that just die out and just blocking their migration. It's just the biggest uh, thing. Yeah. One weird thing that's happened in the Mekong just the last few years, and I haven't formally studied it, but there is an endangered fish, a cool looking fish called a Laotian shad, which is a shad, shad shaped fish, shiny silver scales, but with gold and uh, black spots. And up until recently, you would never... It's very, very rare. And the last couple of years, it's everywhere. And part of me thinks that somehow, you know, because there have been some dams that have gone in, shads sometimes can do well in reservoirs. And I, I, I don't know what's really going on, but part of me thinks that's, it could be one of the the changes that we're seeing, the, the first wave of changes that, we, that we're seeing as a result of these, these dams. And some, they'll be unexpected. So we've, We've already seen the uh, loss of a lot of the classic kind of river species, but maybe for whatever reason, the shad benefited from the reservoirs. Yeah, I guess you can't know until you do it, but you probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You can avoid it all altogether. Is there any hope for avoiding getting those dams built? Or is there, is there uh, an organization, any groups trying to stop it? Well, it's it's playing out all over the world. And every place where you know there's a dam going in, there's some level of debate, but what tends to happen is in more kind of autocratic countries, decisions are made without like an environmental risk assessment or without considering environmental impacts or the impacts on the people, like local people that are living in the area. And then you have other places, like for example, there's a big dam building boom right now in the Balkans. And in Albania, I hope I'm going to get this story right, but in Albania, there's a big debate over whether or not dams should be built in every river. And one of their, um, called the Viosa River, has just been designated as a river national park, which is a specific mechanism to protect the Viosa, um, kind of recognizing it as one of the last like special free flowing rivers in this region. So you, the, the debate and what's happening sort of is it, it, it plays out differently everywhere and it depends on politics. It depends on um, our knowledge. One of the things I work a lot in Southeast Asia and the Mekong, we're constantly trying to learn as much as we can about the fish so that um, when these decisions are made, they're not made kind of out of ignorance. They're made, they still, Dams very likely are still going to get built in a lot of these spots, but at least it won't be because, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know exactly how to say it, but you know that at least it, the information will be there to right. to. So if they're going to do it, 
they're going to know in advance they're going to hurt something and they go, they can make that decision knowing what they're getting into. Are they building these dams primarily for hydroelectric? Yeah. Yeah. The big ones. Yeah. The big ones. Hydroelectricity. And, and Laos is building a lot of dams right now. And Laos is landlocked. It's, um, you know, developing economically, looking for opportunities. And so hydropower is viewed by the government as one way to um, get some economic benefit. And so there are winner, winners and losers. Um, and unfortunately, I think for the fish, I think the fish will be on the losing end. Um, but yeah, it's for, for hydroelectric power. The Cambodian government, again, that's why I say this is playing out differently depending on what where we're talking about. But the Cambodian government has um, made a... Um, a proclamation or sort of agreed not to build main stem dams on the Mekong. So every country is dealing with it a little bit differently. And, um, you know, as solar, as alternative energy becomes cheaper and there are other options, uh, the amount of hydropower development may decrease. Well, let's hope it does. I know there's trending now in North America to start removing dams. So I'm hoping that we, we keep, we keep moving in that direction. All right. So cycling back to the book. I'm going to just kind of ask you a couple easy, easy ones for you. Besides catching the largest fish or be able to measure the largest fish, which I, I'll give away was 661 pounds. I won't tell people what the fish was. And then compared to your 646 pound Mekong catfish. So it was just, just a little bigger. Um, but besides that fish, um, what were some of the more interesting places you visited around the world? I mean, you've went so many places in this book. The, the the spot that jumps out immediately is Guyana, mm-hmm. and Guyana is uh, a small country, uh, north north um, northern South America, and the southern part of Guyana is pristine rainforest, uh, managed by indigenous communities, and the diversity and diversity in every sense of the word the the fish in guyana uh blew my mind uh you have payara which i i'm not sure if you're familiar with payara but it's the vampire fish so it has the two inch long fangs uh there are (laughs) wolf fish which is all are also called giant aymara Mm -hmm. which are almost like a snake head but um have canine teeth there are electric eels um, several species of catfish that get over a hundred pounds, uh, peacock bass. So that it's all kinds of fish. And I'm not, I'm mostly familiar with work in Asia and in Asia, we don't have the predators and, the. I was just, I was surprised in Guyana by the, the beauty of the fish, but also the number of the weapons the fish have, like the number of different ways they can hurt you. Not, not that they would, you know, prana are everywhere. So they're prana, wolf fish, vampire fish, um, several species of freshwater stingray, electric eel. And when you get into these remote areas that haven't been fished heavily, the fit, they're fish everywhere. So I'm used to, you know, you're lucky if you catch one, Mm -hmm. but in Guyana, the fish were everywhere, healthy populations, big fish, all of these, predators we had to we couldn't uh keep fish in the water like if we caught one we couldn't um keep it in the water not release it immediately the prana would just come in and devour it uh, while you're holding which, it <laughs> not while we're holding it just if we left it like if we had it in like a little um sometimes we keep it on the line or whatever and you couldn't do that and i still don't fully understand the way prana operate because we would swim in those rivers and we would bathe and we never had any problems. But if you put a piece of bait or a fit, defenseless fish or anything in seconds, the, the prana would be on it. So I don't know exactly how they sense their prey, but they're a fascinating fish. And the biggest challenge in fishing in Guyana was actually the prana because um, that's all. Right. You have to get would, your, you have to get your bait past the piranha. Yeah, we would try, we would try fishing at night. Um, we would, you know, try fishing with big, big weights to get the, seemed like the prana weren't down really deep. So we'd try to get down deep. Um, so there were a few tricks, but I, I just wasn't used to it. You know, I, I, you know, it's funny. I've experienced the same thing trying to catch a goldfish, believe it or not. I was 
trying to, uh, the goldfish is one of the fish on my list in New Hampshire fishes. And the place I knew they had them also had lots of catfish and bass and other fish. And I was using the tiniest hooks and the tiniest things. And all these pesky other fish just kept getting in the way. And you, you, you do start getting creative. And I did some of the same tricks you did for tiny fish that you're doing for the big fish is how do I avoid these fish and try to outthink them and just trial and error your way through it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of eating fish, I don't, almost everything we do is catch and release, but piranha tastes pretty good. We ended up eating quite a few piranhas. I was going to say, I'd have, no, I'd have no trouble eating those piranhas. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and easy and meal. you'd think, you'd think a, a fish, I don't know. I'm used to associating like that kind of fish with something that also doesn't taste good because if it's that abundant, how could a fish taste good and still be that abundant? But they, they were everywhere and they tasted great. I'll tell you a secret about fish. So you probably don't know this because you probably don't eat all the kinds of fish I've eaten, but um, minnows, the family fish of minnows, some of the best tasting fish I've ever eaten. For the, the little, like, like even, even common, um, common shiners and fall fish, just nice white flaky meat and up through carp, just delicious meat. And I was thinking yeah. about why are they so good? And I was thinking, well, every fish eats them, so they must be delicious. Every other, every other animal wants these fish, so why not humans? Because they're delicious. So, some, someone the other day told me that suckers are good. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, it might have been a specific certain kind of sucker, mm-hmm. and I can't remember what the, can't remember the context of the story, but I was surprised by that. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've read a lot of recipes about sucker. We ate the uh, long nose sucker and the white sucker. And I found the taste of the meat to be just fine, tastes like most other fish. But because we caught them in warm water, the uh, texture was just mushy. So I think if we had other stuff with it, we just bread and fried it. So it wasn't fancy cooking. And uh, just it wasn't great. Suckers were not my favorite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in, when we're down in South America, like most other places, I'm trying to think, but most other places we filmed and where I've done research, we we don't eat the fish. But in South America, we're the ex- it's an expedition. So you're out for a couple of weeks and you're camping and on the river. And in those cases, that that's what people do is they eat fish from the river. Otherwise, you got to bring so, all the provisions in if you're not getting yeah, food from the yeah, land. Yeah. So you might. So as well. prana and peacock bass were both and and arapaima. Actually, we didn't eat wild arapaima. We because it's a a big uh, aquaculture species as well. But all of those three fish were delicious. Yeah, turns out fish are delicious. That's kind of the yeah, yeah. the, the takeaway there. <laughs> all right, getting back to your 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 book, Chasing Giants. Um, again, congratulations. Really fun. Uh, fun quest you're on with this fish. Um, I do want to talk about Nile perch for a minute. Those are one of my the scariest, like my nightmare fish. When I think about Nile perches, I just they scare the hell out of me. Tell us about your Nile perch experience. Yeah, maybe I can get you over your fear. So Nile perch, the um, we fished in Uganda, and uh, we were we were fishing just below Murchison Falls. So the thing that was scary about that was that there were crocodiles everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, and we, we were fishing below the falls. And so the water was foamy. I'm not sure where the foam came from, but it was, you know, the big falls, but there was something in the water that was creating foam. And so we were fishing down below the foam and catching the fish and bringing them in. And it, we were fishing on a rocky bank where you couldn't, there was no easy way to like get down in the water. And we also didn't want to, take the fish out of the water. So I was terrified. I wasn't terrified of the Nile perch. I was terrified of crocs the whole time. I wouldn't have thought of crocs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we couldn't see anything. The reason that you shouldn't be afraid of Nile perch is that they are, you know, every fish you've had experience with this, every fish deals with capture differently. Nile perch are one of the most delicate uh, fish. You really have to baby them. Really? Um, it looks they so didn't tough. De- they, yeah. They didn't deal with capture. I didn't, Sturgeon, like sturgeon, taimen, catfish. We all have experience, you know, snakehead. Some fish don't seem to be bothered at all. And as long as you're relatively, you know, responsible with them, they, we caught one sturgeon. We, it was tagged. It had been caught 27 times previous to the time that were recorded. So probably been caught many more than that, but 27 previous recaptures. So fish like sturgeon do great with catch and release, but Nile perch, they were, they were very delicate. I find that shocking. They just look so intimidating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the way fish look and I mean, alligator gar for me, alligator gar fall in this category where they're such kind of fearsome 
mean looking fish and my experience their personality is not that way at all so i guess uh can't judge a book by its cover no when you, well, when you see gar in the water they're just so slow moving and, and and deliberate and in control i was fishing down in new orleans with a guide and there were garfish all around the boat and he wouldn't let me catch them because he didn't want them in the boat because they would stink his boat up but i was yeah like i was we were catching redfish which were fine but i wanted to eat a gar and he just wouldn't have it. I could not talk him into letting me catch one. So. Well, he did. He didn't want to try. He didn't want to scale it. Right. Well, those giants. I mean, yeah, yeah, huge, tough scales. Huge, tough scales. Well, Zeb, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I'm going to let you go. Uh, but I do want to remind people: your book, Chasing Giants, is coming out. What April twenty? Right around the corner here, April. Yeah. So the official 25th. date of publication is April twenty fifth. But right. I'll let your listeners in on a little secret. Yeah. It is available right now. On Amazon, you can get it tomorrow or the next day if you're Amazon, uh, you know, Prime or whatever. How cool so is the, that? The, the best place to get it is Amazon. It's available now. I really appreciate, uh, you know, your interest and hope your listeners enjoy the book. Well, thank you so much, Seb. That's Seb Hogan, author of Chasing Giants, just wrapped up his epic angling quest of Took him 10 years to find the largest freshwater fish in the world. And I won't tell you what it is because you have to read the book, Chasing Giants, to, to find it. Uh, it's really cool. Congratulations, Zeb. Thanks so much. Cool. And thank you, Zeb Hogan. And in case you didn't catch it, Zeb Hogan is a research biologist at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the United Nations Convention of Migratory Species Scientific Counselor for Fish. He's a fish counselor. Hogan hosts National Geographic's television series, Monster Fish, and his research focuses on migratory fish ecology, fisheries management, and endangered species issues. So, Again, check that book out right now, Chasing Giants, available anywhere you get your books. Amazon's got it right now for you, so you can check that out now. So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Big thank you to the world's deepest fish. Big thanks to uh, Zeb Hogan for giving us time today. And thank you to Wally Pleasant for our, our opening theme music and to Diane's Bath Salts for giving us our news theme. So until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds, spawn early and often. Never trust a freelance with strings attached and swim against the current every chance you get. That's it. You made a podcast with me. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Just for the halibut. Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast.